Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Hi everybody, welcome to the program tonight. I wanted to welcome everybody especially Rabbi Joey for coming on from across the country over here. Tonight's cheer is cheer number 87 with Coach Menachem Bernfeld, the Let's Get Real team over here. Sichas Chaverim, we're growing, Baruch Hashem. And uh, we had a very interesting program last week, a lot of positive feedback, very, you know, going different than Mahalchim with Dr. Sarno. And this week we're going to get into the real back pain, the real stuff. We're going to real panemius back pain. We're going to hit it up. So uh, Joey comes from uh, a lot of people told me to get Rabbi Joey on for a while. Baruch Hashem, he's agreed to come, so let's get into it. So I start off every week thanking everybody for promoting us. The platform is all, Rabbi Joey, it's all self-made. It's not from advertisements, from people that come on and they tell other people about it and they post on the WhatsApp statuses and it's Chavr D'Chavr Islech and they know about it. So I thank everybody for letting people know. I tell everybody, not every program is for every single person, but post it on your status, let people know about it, send it around to family members. You never know what's negated to who and people come on and they get such chizik. So I really appreciate that and keep the, the grassroots movement of, of this program going. Um, if anybody wants to join the WhatsApp every Sunday, I send out the, the WhatsApp flyer. Please send me a WhatsApp at 848-525-0066. Again, that's 848-525-0066. And uh, save my number and I'll send you every Sunday the flyer. Uh, if anybody's watching the replay of this video on YouTube, please click on the like button or the subscribe button to Coach Menachem. So every Sunday, every Monday morning when he posts the share, tomorrow, tonight's share tomorrow, you'll get the video of it and you can watch it there. <clears throat> I also want to start with thanking all our advertising sp sponsors that promote us on the digital platforms, the Lakewood Scoop here in Lakewood, and Rabbi Yanif Chazak, Kyla Kaufman, and Shmuel Summer from JCN, the Jewish Content Network, for always promoting us on all the, the Jewish digital platforms. Coach Menachem Show is collaborating with OK Clarity to bring greater health and wellness to the Jewish community around the globe. OK Clarity is the online platform for mental health support in the Jewish community. OKClarity.com, you'll find the best therapists, coaches, nutritionists, engage your forums and stay inspired. Links will be emailed after the show from Coach Menachem. Again, if anybody's here the first time, for all the first timers, we're up to share 87. Up to, up to the, up the first 100 share, it's free, and then we charge you. So if you better, you better come in before 100, I'm joking. But if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night without mix, whether Menachem's making a wedding, whether I'm making a wedding, whether Chamber Baruch is, whatever it is, we make sure to be here. We, we, we push to be here. We haven't missed Baruch Hashem. So every night, every Sunday night at 9.30 Eastern time, we're here, and we have Muradika lined up. Next week, Rabbi Joey, I'm sorry, ready up to next week. We finished this week. Next week, January 23rd, we have an amazing event. He's actually a good friend of mine, David Becker from Lakewood. He's a great guy, and he's uh, one of the best therapists um, in ADHD. And we're discussing mastering ADHD, learning how to th survive and thrive with ADH, with ADHD across the lifespan. It's a very, very important topic. People, I mean, everybody has some form of it, but people deal with this. And it's a big, big topic. And he is the mumcha of the mumchas in this. And um, it should be a very, very powerful event. Please let people know about it. People should come and join. Tonight, we have the schus and the honor of having Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. He's a big therapist. He lives in St. Louis. He's a mashpia in North Woodmere. And then on his other time, he does other stuff. That's just on the side. Then he has his other stuff. But uh, we'll be here tonight to be mechazah. We're going to get into some very, very powerful stuff, some deep thought stuff. So relax. Maybe make a little chayim. Open it up, but uh, we're going to start off first with Coach Menachem, our host. Open it up, Coach Menachem. Thank you very much. So I want to welcome everyone, everyone back to share number 87. And for those who are here the first time, 
Tonight, personally, I am very excited to have Rabbi Rosenfeld with us and talking about Panemius Atayra. And it's interesting, you know, people trying to put together Panemius Atayra with addiction and healing, you know, what, what's the, the connection, but that's what we're going to hear tonight in Mitzvah Shem. But I do want to share that it doesn't have to be that somebody is an addict to gain from tonight's share because we're going to be talking about the next level in, uh, in, in everything we do as a Jew, whether it's, you know, we daven, we learn, and many of us do everything right from the outside. And it's interesting because there are many people, and I can't say everyone, but there's something inside of us, a feeling that whichever level you're on, there's yearning for something more or sometimes feeling a lack of something. So wh whether it's a lack or yearning, not always are you aware of what it is that you're looking for. I have many people that come to me personally discuss, you know, from the outside, their life can look beautiful and amazing, whether it's at home or at, you know, job, whatever it is, but they, they, they don't know, they can't figure out where are they going to be, you know, in 10 years, what am I looking for? Where am I? You know, there's something that's, that's unclear. And I believe with understanding Panemius Atayra, which we'll hear tonight, will give us a little bit of a glimpse of a guide of understanding, of being able to see ourselves to the next level. So we're not comparing, you know, obviously, um, I know that uh, Rabbi Rosenfeld works in a, a facility and he deals with real, real addiction, but he teaches also for people like me and you who maybe would say, I'm not an addict, uh, but but there's something that we want, something that we're looking for, and not always are we aware. So hopefully tonight in Mitzvah Shem, we'll be able to get to get that. And we've had other shurim of 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 understanding why we we um, understanding if if we numb ourselves. Again, everybody has their things that that help them keep on the routine, and it doesn't let them stop. And usually that's the reason because. There's something there that doesn't let them just stop and think about what's life all about because they don't know how to pinpoint. So they stay uh, busy with their routine or uh, on their phone or whatever, however they numb themselves or go to sleep because they don't want to think about it. But really what it is to be able to, be able to take a step back and figure out what am I looking for and What's my goal? Where am I going? And hopefully we'll be able to fill up that little gap, that, that hole in Mitzvah Shem. So thank you, Rabbi Rosenfeld, for being with us tonight. And Mitzvah Shem will be able to get practical so we can use what we learned tonight, everybody in their own situation, in their own life. Beautiful, beautiful opening. So um, when we, we usually like have a few minutes uh, get together with the person who comes to say the shir. So Thursday we made up, we're going to... And uh, Rabbi Joey told me that his grandmother was Nifter, so he said we're going to learn tonight's shir for all the hundreds of people that are here tonight. Mention the thousands of people that will be mechazek tonight. It should be a schus for your grandmother's, who her name is Esther Tova Bas Meir, and it should be a big schus for Neshama. Amen. And uh, Rabbi Joey, I'm going to read your bio, and then uh, the floor is yours. You ready? Tell me, tell me. I, I added a bunch of stuff, so just tell me if it's correct, okay? Okay. Joey Rosenfeld is a practicing psychotherapist currently working as director of spirituality at the Harris House Foundation Substance Abuse Treatment Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Joey's main interest is interface 
between psychology, philosophy, and spirituality, a frequent lecture on Kabbalistic psychology, Hasidish, and Jewish spirituality. He attempts to graft together desperate threads of thought, creating a constellation of thinkers from various dis disciplines, with a primary focus on addiction. Rabbi Joey attempts to uncover psychological themes underlying the addictive phenomenon in all facets. He's the author in, of the introduction of the Torah of, the Torah of Rabbi Yitzhak Meir Morgenstern Shlita and other works, as well as the Mashpia, the Rosh Chabura of, of Kodesh in Northwood, New York, which I've heard tremendous things about this place. I'm good friends with Ismo. He's going to bring me there for Shabbos, Mr. Shem. We're going to have a big neo Hasidus party with you. Well, that's, that's a separate thing. If Joey <laughs> lives in St. Louis, where he is currently now, and his wife, Alana, and their four children. If Joey, it's just to have you here. Thank you for coming. I'm sure it's a little bit cold where you are. And uh, the floor is yours. Varm us up. Okay. So, Bezra Sashem, the only thing that I would change from the uh, introduction is that the philosophy is no longer such a such an interest. It used to be very much so, but I feel, Baruch Hashem, that I've been able to move through and beyond it. I took the gifts that it offered to me, which is language, but nowadays, if I have even a free second, it has to be a Torah from a tzaddik to offer me some sort of comfort. But um, it's a schuss to be here, Rav Menachem, Rav Usher, what you guys are doing is just a tremendous uh, path-paving work for Klai Yisrael, and as I was saying before, it's something that is Nogeya to now, and it's also something that's going to be Nogeya to the future as well. So it's tremendous, tremendous for the Jewish people to be talking vulnerably, speaking about mental health, speaking about difficulty, no longer pretending that everything is easy and actually acknowledging what it means to be a human being, which is ultimately, I mean, the framework of this podcast is BMS, the best introduction possible to the type of Torah that I'm trying to share. Just to share a little bit about what I do on a practical level, I, I work in an addiction facility with individuals who have rarely met a Jewish person before they've met me, suffering from substance abuse disorders. So addiction to any type of substance from something like marijuana all the way till heroin, and each and every substance has its own world. But what I have tried to do is when I started working in this field, I decided that I would try and experiment with the Hasidus and Panimiya Satora that I had been studying for a number of years beforehand. And because recovery already places a concept of spirituality at the feet of individuals, I said, well, why not our spirituality? So without claiming that these were ideas coming from Judaism, because I speak strictly about spirituality as opposed to particular religions, and I began sharing some of the ideas from our tzaddikim so first and foremost, I reoriented their names. So Rabbi Nachman of Breslov became Naman, and Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz of Mir became Leibowitz's theory of etc. And the Vilna Gon became Elijah Kramer, and the Chazonish became Abraham Isaiah Karolitz. And so I took upon myself that, that chutzpah de Kedusha to take away the proper names prior to the Tzadikim to try and share their words. And what I found was that my clients from Aleph to Taf, from A to Z, were Nispala, they were incredibly moved by the insights that I was trying to bring out from our particular tzaddikim, from our tradition. And this was not simply a phenomenon that started and stopped, but rather it was a phenomenon that kept on growing. And the small spirituality classes that I was giving, utilizing language from 12 steps and secular psychologists and psychiatry as well, but in addition to stories from Naman and Naman's theory of not losing hope, and the Baal Shem Tov's theory of this or that, and they were crazy about it. 
to the extent that I've had clients come back after relapses or after struggling to tell me that the only thing that enabled them to move forward in moments of hopelessness was their memory that Naaman from Bratslav had said that even when you lose hope, there's no such thing as losing hope. So here we have on a certain level, individuals reacting positively to the teachings that we have in our arsenal from the get-go, but it's also a giloy of Kavod Shemayim, it's a giloy of the remarkable honor that comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like we see in this week's Parshim, Parshas Yisro, when those who are far from Yiddishkeit, when those who are completely removed from the light of the Torah, come and acknowledge the power of the light of the Torah. And what I found, and the Pesach, the gateway, to really trying to apply the ideas of Panimia Satora, and we'll discuss later on what Panimia Satora means in general, but I found that what Hasidus and what Panimia Satora teach us at the very outset is that life is not supposed to be easy. The first problem that we encounter as human beings, as adults, is that we have been fed a certain idea of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a neshama that is thrown down into a guf. And we have been taught over time that perfection is the goal, that happiness is the perpetual ideal that we need to grab hold of, that easy life and a happy life is the singular way of serving Hashem. And because we've been convinced that a life without distortion and without difficulty is the best way to serve Hashem and is the best way to accomplish what it means to be a human being, what we find is that whenever we struggle, not only do we suffer, but we also judge ourselves unfavorably. We also look at ourselves and say, wow, look at how low I am. I can't enjoy life like everybody else is enjoying life. I can't benefit from the joys of life because I'm here suffering. And what we've done is we've taken difficulty and struggle and we've pathologized it. We've said that there's something wrong with you if you struggle, there's something wrong with you if life is not perfect for you. And what I believe our tzaddikim have told us, and really what the Torah has been telling us from the very get-go, is that perfection is the most foreign idea imaginable from Yiddishkeit. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anything that is perfect in the realm of Avodah Hashem. Because the only thing that is perfect, the only possible thing that is perfect, is the perfect one, which is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu is imperfect, which means that our imperfections and our struggles and our difficulties are not accidents. They're not personal failures. We're not imperfect because we're not good enough or we're not smart enough or we don't look a certain way or we don't have a certain amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. We're imperfect because that's what it means to be a human being. The very sight of the birth of what it means to be a human being in relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is to acknowledge our imperfection. And when we're capable of being honest and vulnerable with our imperfections, instead of running away from them and instead of trying to hide them and instead of being swallowed up by the shame we typically feel as a result of them, we can now begin to try and figure out how to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu best with our imperfections not in spite of our imperfections, but specifically from within our imperfections themselves. One of the teachings that I hold most dearly is a teaching that's brought down by the Meishiloach of Ishbitz, Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz, who again is the Grand Rebbe, or really the Rebbe of Rav Tzadik HaKohen Meleblin. So this is an idea that is not only true in Hasidic circles, but it's true in the world of 
Lithuanian machshava as well, Maharal, Rav Hutna, Rav Moshe Shapiro, they all took from Rav Tzadok as well. But the Maimer Chazal says, and this somehow found its way into the middle of the tefillah on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, is that they argued for about three and a half years. And they came to the conclusion that Noach lo la'adam shalo nivra yotam nivra. That it would have been easier for an individual to have not have been created than to have been created. And that's a particularly difficult thing to swallow. What do you mean it would have been easier for a person not to have been created? We believe that Hashem sent us down here because this is the best place to find good. But what the Meishi Lach says is as follows. He says, you have to pay attention to what the words of Chazal are saying. They're not saying that would have been better to not have been created. It does not say mutav la'adam shalom nivra yotam nivra. Chazal did not say it would have been better to not have been created than to have been created. Rather, Chazal said it would have been easier, which means that being human and being alive is not an easy thing. It would have been easier to not have to do this. But once we're human, we will come to understand that it is specifically through the difficulty of being human, through the difficulty of what it means to be a neshama in a guf, what it means to have been thrown down from a place of calmness into a place of distortion, it's specifically there that we get to uncover the true greatness of what it means to be a human being. And just one last makor to emphasize this point, it doesn't have to be the Meishiloach or Rav Tzaduk who teaches us this. When we look at the very beginning of Mesilas Yesharim, Mesilas Yesharim from the Ramchal, Aleinu, one of the biggest tzaddikim that the Jewish people have ever had. In the book Mesilas Yesharim, which was written specifically when the Ramchal was at the most difficult point in his life. They had already been burning his books. They already told him that he had no place within the circle of Yahadus. And the Ramchal was forced to run away to Amsterdam. And it's specifically here in Amsterdam that the Ramchal gives us Mesil Sisharim. The letters that the Ramchal was writing during this time were all about the life of Rabbi Akiva. Because just like Rabbi Akiva was able to look at difficulty and say, Gamzu Latova, so too the Ramchal understood how to look at difficulty in his life and say, Gamzu Latova, I'm going to give you Mesil Sisharim from outside of this difficulty. And the Ramchal in the first chapter of Mesil Sisharim, when he asks about what the purpose of being human is, he says, it's pleasure to take pleasure with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so pleasure sounds like things are going to be easy. But then in the next sentence, the Ramchal says, but if you want to understand what it's like to be a human being in this world, imagine a person who is thrown out of an airplane and already in the midst of a battle. The bullets are already whizzing by your head. You don't know from who, you don't know from where, you don't even know what side you're on. But ultimately, that's what it means to be a human being in this world to live in a space of difficulty. And when we're able to acknowledge that and let go of that myth of perfection and finally allow ourselves to be human with all of the difficulties and the beauty that emerge from that, that's where the beginning of Avodah Hashem comes from. And what I found was so many people who were struggling with addiction were individuals who were in truth at the bottom perfectionists. Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, Sklusio Ganelenu pointed this out that perfectionists are what used to be referred to as obsessive compulsive personality type. It's no longer within the diagnostic statistical manual, but perfectionism used to be an identifiable disorder. It was people who demanded perfection from anything and when there was no perfection, they suffered from it. Now these people who wanted perfection so badly, it was not because they felt they deserved perfection. It was because they were so terrified 
of what it means if I admit that I'm imperfect. If I admit that I'm imperfect, everything falls apart. And so there was one thing in these individuals' lives that gave them a sense of perfection, and that was their substance. That was the thing they were addicted to. A drug, a drink, a behavior, whatever it does that a person is addicted to allows the person to feel perfection for a moment. When a person is under the influence or intoxicated, there's nothing wrong in their world. Nothing is broken. But finally, allowing individuals who are suffering to say, guess what? You're not perfect and that's okay. That's specifically how you're supposed to be human. They began to begin to look at their lives in a different way and say, okay, so if I can't be perfect, let me try and be the most perfect, imperfect creature that I can be. And I believe that's exactly what Panimiya Satora is coming to teach us. Joey, beautiful, beautiful opening. Wow. I'm just processing it. It's going to take me a few minutes. Okay, let's take a poll from everybody and we'll get into it. We have a lot of questions. We're really going to try to delve into everything you said now. Okay. Okay, we have a three question poll over here. And uh, let's get into it. Let's see what, let's see what, let's see what the Oilam is. Here we go. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Kabbalah? When you hear that word, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's just, we just want to get, get, a, get a feeling. Number one, is it magic, angels, and mystery? Number two, is it the way Hashem interacts with us? And number three, I have absolutely no idea. I think I'm going to vote number three for myself. Number two, how do you understand what addiction is? Okay, hey guys, pay attention to the question. It's a very deep question. How do you understand what addiction is? Is it A, a disease? B, is it a choice? People make bad choices. Or is it C, is it a disease that affects your choices? So it's a disease, but the, the, the problem with the disease is it affects your choices, good and bad, or whatever, whatever you're doing. And three, do you need to learn Kabbalah Hasidus in order to access Pinimia Satorah, to connect to, to access the depths of Torah learning? So answer those three questions. It's all anonymous. We just want to feel out the crowd, Rabbi Joe. Then after we answer, we'll share. You could see what people are voting, but we'll yeah. share with everybody. You could, if you want to say something, and if we could, then we'll just jump right into it. We have a lot of questions. People mm -hmm. are texting a lot. Again. We have the schus of everybody, Joey Roosevelt here with us tonight. He, very deep. A lot of people said, let's let's really break him down. Let's grind him up. Let's get practical. Let's go mm -hmm. come from, let's bring him down from cloud nine. So he's here. He's one, anything you want to ask, he wants to answer. Um, so please feel free to ask any questions. You have any questions, um, please text Usher Parnas. Live questions go first. So we had two, two shirm ago about public speaking. How to get over that. So anybody has a fear of asking publicly, listen to that share and then come and ask the question live. Okay, five seconds answer and then we're going to share. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, let's share with everybody. Okay, here we go. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Kabbalah? 45% of people, most people here have Joey feel Kabbalah is magic, angels, and mystery. It's like, you know, woo. Um, will, I get a chance, will I get a chance to respond to these? Yeah, yeah, no. Let's just read it, and then I want you to respond to all of them if you have anything to say. So basically, about forty-five percent of the people here, most people believe it's something into something to do with Disneyland. In that, you know, one of those thirty-seven percent of people feel that's the way Hashem interacts with us, and eighteen percent of people have no idea what it is. Second question: How do you understand what addiction is? Ten percent of people feel it's a disease. Fifteen percent feels a choice. The whopping majority of people here tonight feel seventy-five percent feel it's a disease that actually affects your choices. The third question is, do you need to learn Kabbalah Hasidus in order to access Nimiya Satoru? 34% of people say yes. 
most people say no, you don't need to learn Hasidic or Kabbalah to access Panimus Torah. Joey, please comment on all of them if you have anything to say, and then we'll jump into questions. Okay, amazing. So, so with regards to number one, it's not surprising because the association with Kabbalah and Panimus Torah, with magic and angels and mystery, is in fact the historical symptom that there was a Russia who came along and manipulated the teachings of the Arizal and Kabbalah and applied them to his own reasonings. That was Shabtai Tzvi and his Kasa Arura, the cursed group of his students. But truth be told, but the truth must be told that in terms of Kabbalah, when we think about what the Arizal was trying to do for us, it's really what Hashem was telling us in terms of what reality is. That when we look at Panimiya Satora, it is not something that is above and out there. We have no access to malachim, to magic. Those are things that perhaps tzaddikim used to have access to. Certainly tzaddikim nowadays can have access to, although it's not necessarily what they engage in. But in terms of what it means for us, when a person learns Panimiya Satora, whether it be the Arizal, the Ramchal, the Vilnagon, the Balshemtov, the Rashash, Ravarya Kaplan, whoever it is, it's ultimately coming to teach us what it means to be a human being in this world. What does it mean to be a creature that feels separate from Hashem, who at the same point believes in the unity of Hashem? That is the entire conversation that Kabbalah is coming to answer. How is it that I, as a separate ego with my anxieties and my difficulties, can at the very same moment be attached to the infinite light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu at every single moment? And Kabbalah comes to understand and answer that paradox. It comes to explain how the infinite and the finite can interrelate with one another. Now, again, what Chazal have taught us that the ultimate place that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to rest himself is in the lowest imaginable space possible. HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world has created a space where things are as difficult as they can possibly be with the light of Hashem still present, which means, again, that our difficulty is understandable. And Bayes, it means that it is our job down here as finite, limited creatures to try and understand how we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And so it's really the second answer, but I also want to point out, Rav Asher, that the third answer that you added, which is that I have no idea, is also the depth of the answer. Because when a person learns all of Kabbalah, when a person learns from the first gate in the Arizal to the last gate, when a person learns the first word in the Zohar to the last word in the Zohar, the absolute purpose of study of Torah is to come to a place where I acknowledge that I have absolutely no idea what is what, and all I can do is have a muna in Hashem. As Rabbi Nachman would say, the apex of what it means to be a Jewish individual is to come to recognize Hashem. I don't know. I have tried my whole life to know with absolute certainty what's going to be and what is, and I am forced daily to come into contact with the fact that I don't know. And instead of being anxious in the fact that I don't know, Amuna allows us to find hope in the fact that we don't know. So it's both answer B and C. With regards to question two, it's a very big chizik for me because I would have imagined that many more people would have answered that addiction is simply a choice. For a very long time, up until about 20 years ago or so, the working definition of addiction was that it was a bad choice that a person made, that anybody who was engaged in any type of addiction 
And again, as like Rabbi Nachum pointed out, addiction does not need to be to a substance of choice. My bias is that we all live on something called the spectrum of potential towards addiction. Any activity, any behavior, any thought, any process that we engage with in order to make life easier for ourselves that we're afraid of letting go of is what I would define as the potential towards addiction. But for a very long time, addiction was seen as a bad choice, as a moral failing, as somebody who was choosing alcohol or drugs over their family and their responsibilities. And it was no wonder that if that was what they were doing, they would be blamed. That's why they would be put into prison. That's why there was a war on drugs against them. Thankfully, with the miracles of modern science, we now understand that neurologically speaking, there is a chemical disorder within the brain of the addict or the alcoholic. And what we've come to understand is that the addict or the alcoholic does not enjoy getting high or drunk more than other people. The addict or the alcoholic is more uncomfortable when they're sober than other people. It's the discomfort at the heart of their experience which drives them to try and find an answer. And if the discomfort is very strong, then the answer will come about in the lens of a mind-altering chemical. But it's a disease that affects the individual's capacity to make a choice. It's a disease that prevents the person from being able to judge the situation in front of them. Just to go a little bit deeper into this little bit of an answer, neuroscience has told us for a very long time that addiction was something related to the frontal cortex of the individual's brain. The frontal cortex area, which runs from one ear to the other, is the area <coughs> responsible for choice. It's a scale of sorts, like the Rambam describes in Hilchos Tshuva. On the one hand is my family, my responsibilities, my professional liabilities, and all of the things that I know to be true for a human being. And on the other hand is the desire to become intoxicated. And if addiction is rooted in the frontal cortex, then the person is simply making the wrong judgment. They're allowing alcohol or drugs or whatever behavior it is to become the most important thing instead of everything else. But what neuroscience has shown us is that when an addict or an alcoholic has their brains activated, it's no longer the frontal cortex that is engaged in the conversation, but rather the midbrain. And the midbrain has nothing to do with choice and everything to do with survival, which means that for the addict or the alcoholic, it's no longer a question of usage of my mind-altering behavior instead of responsibility, but rather it's a question of survival. And in the face of surviving, all of the things that I care about and I love, as much as I love them, they don't mean anything in the face of me surviving. And so when the addict or the alcoholic is stuck in their behavior, it's not so much that they're making the wrong choice as much as it is that at that moment, they're incapable of making the right choice, which is what we mean when we say a disease that affects your choice. And again, thankfully, because of our tzaddikim, like the Rambam and like all of our tzaddikim who spoke about Yedia and Bechira, about the foreknowledge and the free choice of an individual, Rev. Eliyahu Dessler and his Nekuda Sabachira, the relative space of free choice, this can become very understandable. And thirdly, with regards to the last question, which again is such a empowering thing to see, a person does not ever need to open up a book of Panimia Satora of Hasidus or Kabbalah or the Vilnagon or the Ramchal to be a Panimi Yid. A person can learn Halacha and Gemara their entire lives. 
But if we learn it mindfully, if we learn it as if it is the only thing keeping us alive, if we learn it with a willingness to ask ourselves, what is the Gemara trying to say to me right now? What is this halacha trying to say to me right now? Not how I should act, but rather what does it mean to be a human being? At that point, the person becomes a pinimiyid as well. And a person need not ever open a sefer of pinimiyas Torah to be a pinimiyas dekayid. So Baruch Hashem, for me, that's a very empowering thing to see that the answers are being answered properly. At least in my humble opinion. So, Joey, the people that are coming here are growing people. We, this is this is Hashem people there. They're here every week to grow. It's a generation. It's a generational thing. Also, we're so close to the end that we're all we're all already we're all already intuiting the answer. We all know our neshamos already know what we need to know. Baruch Hashem. Okay, we have a bunch of questions here to really get deep into what Panimus is and all that stuff. You we have a live question. A few people want to start. Matt, you're on first. You can go, and then we have somebody after. Rabbi Rosenfeld, I have a, a question where, you know, when you're talking about uh, perfection, how this is foreign to Yiddishkeit, it, it seems abundantly clear with relation to, you know, if, if every with Yitzhak, Rivka, Yaakov, Dovich, look, it's like every, it's almost to an extreme that Hashem is trying to point out our imperfections to the, to the point of really honing in on the imperfections. It seems so clear that this is this is the perspective this is the jewish perspective yet correct me if i'm wrong that's not how most jews relate to the torah we we with most jews the perspective is perfection and when things go wrong the how could where's god how could this happen right. what, what 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 where does that perfect because the torah is so clear that life is a struggle, where does that perfection come from? Where do we get that perspective that it should be perfect? Right. Amazing question, Matt. And it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Um, there's two, the, the first answer that we won't delve too deeply into is the influence that our cousin religions have had on Yiddishkeit. Judaism, you're absolutely right, has never seen perfection as an ideal or even a possibility. We see this even with Adam and Chava. Adam was not perfect when he was created. If he was perfect, there would have been no need for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to command him to guard himself. A perfect creature need not guard himself. Adam Arishon in his creation was already susceptible to failure. That's the entire story of the Yitzhadas Tovara. Adam Arishon's job was to perfect the world, but he was born imperfect. Cousin religions of ours have placed human capacity. Only Nishma Sisral they were able to make such a klipa out of, but there was the idea that Nishma Sisral was capable of being perfect. And that became the idea that what we're supposed to do is become perfect. And so there were of the Bali Tosfos who came along and said that in the first Beis Amikdash, the sins that we engaged in were very bad, but they weren't so difficult to fix. In the second Beis HaMikdash, the sins we were engaged in were very bad, but they were not so difficult to fix. This gullus that we're in was a different type of sin. It took a Jewish soul, and it said that it was as perfect as God. And therefore, our job is to remind ourselves every day that no Jew can ever be perfect. 
All of the tzaddikim that we have, all of our abayim that we have, are there to remind us that no human being can ever truly be perfect. So one answer is it's the influence of other religions. But the second answer I want to delicately move into is that my opinion is that it's not so much a question of whether a person is anxious or not. It's a question of how anxious am I? Anxiety is a volume and a song that is always playing in our minds. The only question is, is the volume so loud that it's a diagnosis of anxiety? Or is the volume low enough for me to function? What anxiety stems from, according to both our tzaddikim and lahavdil, our psychologists, anxiety stems from an unknown future. Anxiety is an anticipatory fear over what will happen in the unknown future. And because I don't know, my mind immediately assumes that it will be A, unmanageable, and B, overwhelming. The antidote to the unknown is something that can be absolutely known. Something that can be absolutely known is perfect. If I know what's going to be, it's perfect. I don't have to worry. So I believe that our desire so often to strive for perfection in spite of the fact that it beats us over the head every time when we're forced to acknowledge our inherent imperfection is an unhealthy attempt to cope with the natural anxiety of what it means to be a human being, to be cursed with the fact that we do not know. And instead of trying to know everything, our job as Ovde Hashem and as human beings is to come to accept that we will not know everything. Perhaps we will not know anything. And that's what allows us to live with Amuna. Amuna allows a person to rest assuredly in that which is not assured. It's a paradox. It allows me to trust that which I have no idea is happening. And until we learn that answer, we'll never be okay accepting our imperfection because to be imperfect means to be open to all of the things that can go wrong. So I think we're so afraid of what it means to be imperfect creatures that we create our avos and our imahos and our tzaddikim as perfect creatures. Rav Hutner famously answered in a letter to a Talmud who was struggling so difficultly with ups and downs and failures. And again, the beautiful thing about the letters that these people wrote to their tzaddikim is that we're all the ones writing the letters. It doesn't matter who was writing the letter. We're all writing letters to our imaginary tzaddikim and we're all saying, Rebbe, Rebbe, I don't know what to do with myself. One moment I feel up, one moment I feel down, one moment I feel up, one moment I feel down. I don't know what to do. And Rav Hutner answered, he says, do you think that the Chafet Chaim had an easy time not speaking Lashon Hara? Only Rav Hutner could say such a thing, but he said, who knows how much struggle the Chafet Chaim went through about not speaking Lashon Hara before he was able to write Shmira Salashon. Which means that we need to respect our Gedolim, we need to respect our Tzadikim, not as angels. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has enough angels. We need to respect our gedolim as individuals who struggle with the Sahara, who engage in that battle with the Sahara, and to realize that shevel yipol hatzadik v'kam, that the tzadik falls down seven times and gets up. Rav Hutner famously, without quoting it, is quoting Rav Tzadok, where he says, the chiddish, the novelty of a tzadik is not that he gets up even after falling seven times. 
It's that because I have fallen seven times, I'm able to get up. The only way to become a fully embodied Jew who is capable of being vulnerable in the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with a lev basar, which is ultimately the essential purpose of Pnei Misa to have a heart of flesh, to be vulnerable, is to own our failures. It's to come to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and say, Abba, I have fallen. I'm struggling, but I know you're here with me. That's our perfection. We learn this most from David Malka Mashiach, from David HaMelech. And I'm sure we'll come back to David HaMelech throughout, so I'm not going to embellish on why it's David HaMelech. But David HaMelech is not the perfect servant of God. He's the perfectly imperfect servant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's David who teaches us how to be impoverished and at the very same moment of utter impoverishment to feel as rich as any human being can ever feel. Bezrus Hashem. Rabbi Rosenfeld, the, the, the chat's blowing up. We have a lot of people that, 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 wanna, that, that are ready to go. You ready? I'm here. Okay, you're here. Here we go. You're on live. Go. Hi. Wanted to, thank you so much. I wanted to ask you a question about recovering from addiction. Um, first of all, can a person recover through learning Musar, namely just creating new neural pathways in their brain and recover that way? And I know that there's a big... Um, debate in the recovery community in the 12-step community recovering versus recovered and can a person truly be considered recovered or will they always have a propensity toward going back to the substance thank you so much an amazingly amazingly thoughtful question thank you so within the framework i'll start with the first question with the last question first and then we'll come back to the first question last the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which just to, to state my humble opinion on the matter is the best that we have right now. It's the best that we have, right? So the 12 step framework, because it was rooted in spirituality, because it was rooted in spirituality and not religion offers itself up to be a framework that allows a Yiddish and Neshama to find insight. There are certain elements within the 12 steps that need to be rectified. Ultimately, the 12 steps still emerge from a place that is not Jewish. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. That just means we have to learn how to take the next step, which I like to refer to, and I know other people refer to it as well, which is the 13th step, 13 being the gematria of echad, of unity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of ahava, of love. But nevertheless, in my humble opinion, what we have in the framework of the 12 steps is the best option we have. The 12 steps, when a person looks at the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as the prototype of the text, they use the language recovered very often, as if a person were fully recovered from their addiction. It was only later on in secondary literature, as well as continued future psychology, which says a person can never look at themselves as fully recovered, but they must look at themselves as in the process of always recovering. And the typical reason for making that distinction was that a person who sees themselves as fully recovered from their addiction now stands at the risk of falling into complacency, if God forbid, and feeling that they've overcome their issues, which is the opening of the door into the failure. Now, I like to utilize the idea of Elu Elu Divrei Elokim Chaim, that these and those are the words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this. When I am relating to myself today in this 24 hour period as a recovering individual, I think that it is appropriate to be able to say, I am recovered. I am in control of what happens from the moment I wake up until the moment that I put my head down on my pillow. 
I always like to tell my clients, I am born in the morning. It's a new creation. I hit my midlife crisis around lunchtime where I get tired and cranky and annoyed at the world. And when I put my head down on the pillow, I give my soul over to you, I say my vidoy of Kriyat Shema Lamita, and I die for that day. Which means that every 24-hour period is a lifetime. It's not simply one day. And if I can be sober or clean from whatever behavior I'm trying to be clean from for that 24-hour period, that's never going away. So with regards to how I am today, I can use the language recovered. I need to be confident in my capacity that I am not going to go back to those behaviors. But with relationship to tomorrow, I have to always see myself as in the process of recovering. Because the moment I think I am recovered for tomorrow based on what I've done today, I am no longer working a healthy program in recovery. Each day is a new day that demands of me a new Mesiris Nefesh, giving of myself over to the fact that today I will be sober no matter what. So in relationship to today, yes, we can say we are recovered. In relationship to what happens tomorrow, I must see myself as perpetually in a state of recovering. This is not only true for recovery, but true for Avodah Sashem as well. With regards to where I am today, Rabbi Nachman says, I have to be able to say to Al-Kadosh Baruch Hu, I am doing exactly what I need to do. I am doing my very best. But if my very best today is going to be what I do tomorrow, then I'm not doing anything. Each and every day needs to be seen as an existence unto itself. So today I am recovered, but with relationship tomorrow, which is a brand new reality, I am in the process of recovering. And with regards to the first question, which is can a person utilize Musr as a framework to benefit from recovery? What I would say is as follows. There are two elements of recovery. There's the insight, there's the knowledge, the intellectual shifts that take place in a person's mind. And most certainly a person can get that from Sifre Musr and a person need not utilize the big book or any secular book to give them that insight. The thing that a 12-step program offers a person is a framework and an infrastructure of applying that knowledge to action. It gives a person a space of doing something daily, of being in touch with people, of developing healthy connections and social connections, and that will not be covered by a Musser Sefer. But I do believe that like our Musser Gedolim, like Rav Wolbe and Rav Yeruchim Levavitz of Mir, what they wanted was they wanted Musser to become a community. They wanted Musser not to just to be a limud, but they wanted to be a confrontation and a conversation with other individuals. Like what and we're doing we, here tonight. I'm sorry? Like what we're doing here. Exactly right, exactly right. Meaning if a person had access to what is happening here right now on a daily basis, I would say a person can utilize Sifrei Musser and develop a healthy recovery plan. But because this is not happening every night, and because Klal Yisrael, as Rav Tversky, told us, has a long-suffering problem with the Shanda factor, the shame in which we live, where we hide the problems of the Jewish community, it might take some time to get there. But until we get there, I think that the program work itself, the need to go to a meeting or to talk to a sponsor, is something that is essential in addition to the wisdom of whatever spiritual text I'm reading. Okay, Reverend Joy, let's go to the next live question. You're on. 
Hi, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, I wanted to know how can we learn to be okay with being imperfect emotionally um, and to feel safe to fail um, from an emotional point of view, even if we already know the knowledge from a logical way? Again, these questions are, uh, and Rav Asher and Rav Menachem, and it's only a testament to you that you're collecting such people who feel safe to come here with these questions. It's an incredible thing, really. The question of how do we translate intellectual knowledge into an emotional experience? By the way, Rabbi Joe, I just want to say this is something that I've been working on personally myself. I'm just putting it out there. Sometimes you feel emotionally, logically, you get the Indian, you get it clear. It's so in my mind. But in the heart, the heart doesn't accept the mind. It just you're right. You're right. There's a story. There's a Misa before based on Rav Asher, your Lashon. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was a, of the greatest tzaddikim that we have ever had. My tzaddik, Rav Yitzchak Mar Morgenstern Shlita, bases so much on the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab, and this is already recorded in the writings of the Rebbe Rayatz and the Rebbe itself. So this is from internal Chabad literature, that the Rebbe Rashab was struggling on whatever level of tzaddik struggles with certain elements of whether or not his admorish, whether his Rebish kite was like his father, was like the Rebbe Maharash, like the Rebbe of Shmuel. And because he was struggling, he went to Berlin and he went to Vienna after Berlin, and he met with a psychiatrist there named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud sat with the, with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And what Sigmund Freud's response to the Lubavitcher Rebbe was about his difficulties, and I can share, I gave a sheer on this Indian, was that the mind understands what the heart cannot grasp. So Rabasher, you know, your, your, your difficulty is, is directly in line with what the tzaddikim were feeling, all of us. When it comes to emotions, it's no longer a question of what is right or what is wrong. Emotions do not care what is right or what is wrong. I have read many books, academic books, psychological books, psychiatric books about emotions. There is no greater theory of emotion than what my three-year-old or four-year-old child is able to say. Why do you feel this way? Because, just because. Emotions do not care about intellect. They're there, no matter what. When an emotion comes, when I say I'm in a mood or I'm in a bad mood, imagine as if we're in a room. It doesn't matter what information you're throwing at me, I'm still in this room. So no matter what you tell me, as much as I shouldn't be in this room, I'm still in this room, I'm still in that mood. So the first thing we have to understand is that when it's an emotional feeling, we have to stop trying to utilize the intellect. It's like using a hammer with a screw. The emotions of an individual feel very, very intense, but they also pass a little bit quicker than our thoughts. When a person is feeling a difficult emotion, when a person is feeling an emotion that makes them feel less than or makes them feel worried, our job is two steps. Number one, we have to look at it and accept that emotion as the reality of the moment. This is what is present in my life right now, this emotion. And the next thing we have to do is instead of trying to judge that emotion as being negative, we need to try and understand and accept that emotion 
as the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants me to meet him in that moment. The Piyazatz Nareba Hashem Yim Kamdoma, more than any other tzaddik, has taught us that every emotion that a person experiences is an opportunity for Yechidus with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it would be our own fault if we see an emotion and we say, no, I don't like this emotion. I'm not going to take this opportunity to have a face-to-face -face encounter with Hashem. When I'm in an emotion, I need to lean into it. I need to feel it. I need to acknowledge it. I need to let it be present. And instead of running away from it, I need to find HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that emotion. So when I'm feeling an emotion that makes me feel sad, I have to recognize that, okay, Hashem, you want me to find you in the saddest right now. You want me to find you in the difficulty. And when a person stops trying to run away from a negative emotion and allows it to be there without the fear of dying as a result of it, with the recognition that I'm strong enough to face this emotion, I'm strong enough to get through it, the emotion loses a lot of its power. And it becomes something that, yes, it's uncomfortable, but I can deal with it. Something that we have to remind ourselves and relearn over and over is that difficult does not mean impossible. I believe that addiction is based on the assumption that difficult means impossible. And therefore, if it's a difficult emotion, the only thing I can do is use that behavior that helps me get through the impossible. But if I learn that difficult does not mean impossible, then those difficult emotions become an entrance point for me to encounter Hashem. And that's when I have to say to Hashem, Hashem, I'm sad right now. I don't like feeling sad. I'm scared of feeling sad. But Hashem, at least let me be sad with you. Let me be present with you in my sadness. And when a person draws Hashem into their sadness, the sadness stops being so anxiety producing. It stops being so lonely. I'm now with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is what Rabbi Nachman referred to as hispodidus. Bedidus, loneliness, isolation, is the root of all forms of insanity. If I feel I'm feeling something alone, then I can die as a result of it. It's too overwhelming. But the moment I realize that no matter how lonely I am in this difficult emotion, Hashem is there with me, at that moment, that emotion stops feeling so intense. Rabbi Nachman and our tzaddikim tell us, L'cha amar libi bikshu panai. My heart tells me, seek out the face of Hashem. And Rabbi Nachman says, Hashem, my emotions of my heart, the difficult emotions that you send me, are you speaking to me? They're you speaking through my difficult emotions, reminding me that it's time to draw you into that experience. So while the intellect is the space of Torah learning and judging one thing versus another, the heart is a place of tefillah. And when it comes to emotions, we have to bring Hashem into it and talk to Hashem about the emotion and daven through the emotion. And Bezras Hashem, what we'll come to find is that no emotion lasts too long. They dissipate relatively quickly in relationship to how long we thought they would last. Joey, let's go to the next one. You're on. Sure. Joey, Joey, it's right. Teeth, that's all I want to say. Go. Hi, Rabbi Joey. Thank you so much for sharing with us uh, so much today every week. Um, I listen to it all the time, and I grow a lot from it. Um, 
I'm asking for myself, but I'm assuming many other people have similar questions. If someone wants to learn more premium Sotoda, how does one start? There's so many types of Sotoda from all types of, from more cognitive to more emotional to easygoing Sotoda. Like, how, how does one conquer this field of like premium Sotoda? Or even how does one start to do that? Levi, it's good to see you. It's a hard question. And I'm also, and first and foremost, I'm biased. I'm, I'm incredibly biased because as you'll see the picture behind me is Rav Yitzhak Maya Morgenstern Shlita. And I feel that the Rebbe Svarim have opened up Benimi Satora on a level that very few people, if anybody has done before. But we live in a time where I believe, humbly speaking, that it is more difficult to misunderstand Benimi Satora than it is to understand. Everything is revealed, whether you're an English speaker who can't le read a word of Hebrew, and whether you are a Hebrew speaker who wants to learn Belamdus, there are so many Hakadamas Svarim that every person has the right to say, I am going to prepare to learn Pinimisa Torah. Now, before I give an Eitzah on this, Rablevi, I want to give one practical kind of public service announcement. There are many people who, when it comes to Panimia Satoira, when it comes to the inner teachings of Torah, they feel, who am I to learn? I haven't filled my stomach with Shas and Postkim yet. I haven't understood the entire revealed Torah. Now, first off, from my own experience, learning in Yeshiva, when second Seder, I was learning the Leshem Shavoy Vachaloyma, Rav Yashav great-grandfather or grandfather, people would come over to me and ask me, you know, why are you learning such esoteric things? Why are you learning such things that are so disconnected from reality? And I would ask them what they learned in Shir that day. And they would say, oh, I learned the Rav Chaim Brisker and I learned the Rav Shmuel Rakovsky and I learned the Chakira that was brought down by the Rogachever. And I would say, just pause for a second and ask yourself, is what you're learning any less esoteric than what I'm learning? No. Lumdus is an entry to Pneumius. Lumdus is learning, is learning that what is written is not all that there is. So we have to stop being afraid of learning Panimia Satira. The next realization is that there is a major, major trend in many Meforshim that Panimia Satora is revealed in response to the difficulty and the sickness that human beings are experiencing. The sicker a neshama is, the more medicine it needs, the more medicine it needs, the more Panimia Satora is revealed. Without this shita, without this concept that Panimia Satora is medicine for a broken-hearted soul, I would have never given myself permission to open up a book of the Arizal or a book of the Balshemtov or a book of the Gra or the Ramchal. We're sick. We're at the end of Gullus and things have become so difficult and so hard sometimes that we need the strongest medicine in order to survive. That being said, when we give ourselves permission to learn Panimia Satora because it's the medicine we need, it's the place that a person wants to start from. If a person wants to start in Hasidus, there are a number of Svarim that can be utilized. If a person wants to be a Talmud of the Gra or a Litvak, there are a number of Svarim that can be utilized. If you want to be a Svardi and follow the Derech of the Rashash, there are a number of Svarim. And Rav Usher, if it's possible, I'm happy to write a list of Svarim afterwards and to share it with the Hevra. But I think I that- think, the, I, think you should, I think you should send Menachem a list of- uh, I will. 
And we'll, we'll send an email to everybody. Yeah, but the deepest answer is that Reblebi, wherever you start, you arrive at the destination. It doesn't have to be the right safer. Wherever you enter in is an entry into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. The Kodesh HaKadoshim nowadays has an infinite amount of doors to it. Every soul has its own door into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And if I learn one book and it opens my mind up to something else, then that's my entry. Baruch Hashem, we have Mashpi and we have Rav Moshe Weinberger in our generation who gives shirim and entries. But a person just has to look at the sefer they're learning as the exact sefer they have to learn. I learned this Shabbos that if a person doesn't believe when they're learning a word of Torah that it's Hashkacha Pratis from Hashem, that this is the exact sefer I need to be learning right now in my life, then a person has not fully understood their bitachon and Akadish Baruch Hu. So whatever we're learning, wherever we start, we have to start somewhere and to realize that all nechalim, all roads lead to the same destination, Bezras Hashem. I'll tell you why. Just the, the many starting here. We're starting here. Many, many people want to know, they, they, they want to know what they're looking for. And some people learn one safer. And it, for beginners, sometimes they could learn it and they're not sure if they are getting somewhere. It might take time. So that's where people could get confused. What am I looking for? Am I in the right place? So, right. The the, the etza is that when a person Hashem, the pasuk that we say at the end of davening says, "I yearn towards Hakadosh Baruch Hu. I find that I've reached the limit of my strength, and I yearn more for Hakadosh Baruch Hu." A, a Yiddish cup, a Yiddish heart that feels that they're going to find the answer immediately is never going to find an answer. A person has to be willing to be Moser Nefesh. And Mesiris Nefesh, again, we know, doesn't mean giving our lives up. Our tzaddikim do that for us. Mesiris Nefesh just means pushing a little bit more further than we're used to. And so, yes, you're right. The person has to learn sometimes. And sometimes the next question is going to be, I'm not hopping anything. I'm not getting anything. But a person has to be willing to continue and to try until a person has a psicha, until a person has an opening in their minds that says to them, oh, this is the nekuda I needed. B'derach klal, tzadik be'emunaso yichya. The nekuda ha'panimius of all of panimius ha'torah is the nekuda of emuna. Emuna means that no matter where I am, no matter how far I am or how high I am on the rungs of reaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I am with Hashem. Emuna is everywhere with us, no matter how far I have fallen or no matter how high I climb. I just read Rav Yitzhak Maya Morgenstern quoted in the name of the Slanamer Tzadikim that a person is not allowed to talk about any avodas Hashem that they are not fully working on, except for emuna, Because by emuna a person is always by emuna. There's a certain elasticity of emuna. So the, the miracle of something that is elastic is that it grows with the strength that I push on it. It grows and it grows and it grows. No matter where I find myself, if I'm in the Shar Hanun of Tuma or in the Shar Hanun of Kedusha, it's all Emuna. And when I come to recognize that the only things I need to work on are Emuna and Kedusha, a person begins to forgive themselves. A person begins to accept themselves. And a person begins to believe that maybe, just maybe, Hashem is big enough to be right here with me at this moment. Pedimia Satora is meant to teach us that what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants is the greatest imaginable good for a human being that could ever be imagined. 
as long as it's making me feel closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's emuna, it's panimia satora. Ah, and all of the answers will be, but what if I'm doing X, Y, or Z? What if this, that, or the other thing? Avada, we need to do tshuva on every single thing in the world. And we're going to be held to task for everything that we do. But in the end of the day, where we are at this point in our lives, at this point in history, we need to trust that our amuna in HaKadosh Baruch Hu is real no matter what. Wherever I find myself, I'm with Hashem. That is what Pinimi Satara is coming to teach. I am never too far gone. Never. It's an impossibility. There's no greater kfira in the world than a yid who feels that they are too far gone to come back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a moment. In a moment of a hear her tshuva. Okay, before we go to the next live question, did you ever hear of the book, The Gift of Imperfection? So I, I've never heard of the book, The Gift of Imperfection, but I have heard of the book, The Spirituality of Imperfection. And I don't know if the person who's asking the question is, is referencing that book. That's a book I would highly recommend, actually. That's okay. a book written by Ernie Kurtz. Ernie Kurtz was a gewalt. He was not Jewish. Ernie Kurtz was uh, some sort of monastic, you know, priest of some sort. He was a spiritual person. And he fell in love, which was against the rules there. And so he decided to drop out. He went to Harvard. He was an alcoholic his whole life. He went to Harvard, wrote his PhD on the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then became a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called The Spirituality of Imperfection, which I highly, highly recommend because he was also very close friends with Rav Avram J. Tversky, Rav Avram Mishaya Tversky, who was considered a bucky in the realm of addiction. And my bias is that 200 years from now, people are going to say, you know what? There was once a real Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov. There was once a real tzaddik who was willing to get down on his knees and help the Jewish people. And that was Rav Avram Tversky. I believe that, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that his yard site was either yesterday or this week. But Rav Avram J. Tversky was the tzaddik and the gadol who was willing to draw down all of Pnimiya Satora into the realm of addiction. But again, yes, I, I recommend if the book that the questioner is asking is The Spirituality of Imperfection, I highly recommend it. Yeah, There's even a story okay. about Rav Shlomo Bubavar in there. Let's get to the next live question. You're on. Well, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Well, hi. First of all, thank you for your amazing presentation. Uh, you talked about forgiveness and you talked about forgiving oneself. And I believe you talked about understanding other people when they have addictions. So at which point do we forgive other people and how much do, can people uh, do that can be harmful to other people before they are taken to task for their deeds? Thank you for your question. It's a very important question. It's a painful question. When a person is in active addiction, when a loved one is in active addiction, it's very important to remember that addiction is not a singular disease. Addiction does not simply affect the addicted individual. Addiction affects the entire family. Now, whether the loved one is a codependent to their loved one's addiction or whether they're just suffering from their loved one's addiction doesn't make much of a difference. Forgiveness and judging a person favorably does not mean that a person does not set up the boundaries that they need to set up to ensure the safety of themselves, the safety of their family, and the sanity of themselves and the sanity of their family. When my loved one, God forbid, is suffering from an addiction, which brings about behaviors that can be so incredibly destructive that 
we become so overwhelmed at the possibility of judging the other favorably. What we have to remember is one thing. The addict or the alcoholic is responsible for what they've done, is accountable for what they've done, but they are not at fault for what they have done. They did not wake up in the morning and say, how can I destroy the life of my loved ones today? They did not wake up in the morning and say, how can I get the most pleasure today? They woke up in the morning and said, how can I survive today? And the lying and the hiding and the dishonesty that comes along with addiction is just addiction trying to survive. The addiction knows that when the light of truth is shown upon it, it can no longer survive. That's what rock bottom means. It's a moment of truth. So the addict or the alcoholic is willing to tell any lie and any rationalization possible in order to maintain their addiction. Now we do not need to tolerate the addicted behavior. There are thankfully nowadays steps that can be taken to alleviate the addicted behavior. Detoxification. And if I'm understanding correctly, I believe that there are in the process, you know, Yiddish recovery programs at Bezra Sashem, maybe one day I'll find myself in. But until then, we have to look at the addict's experiences. We have to ensure that we keep the boundaries of their behavior. The loved one of an addict or an alcoholic never has to allow their loved one into the room when they're intoxicated. We're allowed to make rules that say you can't see your loved ones until you're sober. But at the same point, we have to hold in our heart the very vulnerable and difficult message that says, I'm not mad at you as much as I'm disturbed and saddened by the behaviors. So it's not a question of either or. It's a very delicate balance, like all of life, which is a dance between opposites, which is that we judge the addictive behavior and we're allowed to set up any boundary we see fit with the help of professionals, while at the same point acknowledging that this person is sick and suffering. And in that sense, we're able to see our loved ones still there, we're able to be there. But at the same point, we're able to maintain the boundaries that we set for ourselves. Forgiveness does not mean allowing a person to step all over us and create distortions or destruction in our life. It's a very delicate question. Very different, Jody. Wow. Okay. Let's go to the next live question. You're on. Okay. Uh, got a question here. Two of them. One, um, what is your take on addiction tendency being genetic? And the other one is, uh, if you see, I learned um, as a pharmacist and continuing education, alcohol is the uh, gateway drug not marijuana, and those who become addicted around bas mitzvah, bar mitzvah time, 12, 13, it changes their brain permanently. And those are the people who do not succeed in recovery. Whereas those who are adult, uh, become addicted as an adult, they are able more to recover. But those other people just fail over and over again. So have, what have you seen? So with regards to your second question, first and foremost, with regards to your second question, I have not dealt with young children enough or, or young adolescents enough to really see the patterns of behavior that emerge at a young age. But what is clear is that the neurobiological growth process does get stunted when the substance usage begins. 
But thankfully, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has created a brain and has created such nisim and miracles as neuroplasticity that the brain wants to heal. And the brain will heal given enough time of abstinence from that substance. It is one of, I believe, the greatest miracles in terms of what the medical field and the scientific field have taught us is that the brain is an ever-changing system and the brain wants to maintain its healthy equilibrium. Now, it could be that younger children, because of their young exposure and the stunted growth that they've experienced when they start using substances, do have a more difficult path ahead of them. But my bias and my almost absolute need to believe is the fact that nobody is unchangeable. And I believe that this is ultimately one of the elements that Yiddishkeit adds to the 12 steps that are not found within the 12 steps. That like Rabbi Nachman tells us that if you believe that you can destroy, a person must believe that they can fix. And with the proper help and intervention, there is no human being, no Yiddish neshama that is incapable of moving itself ever so slightly back towards integral health. And in fact, Chazal have already told us that that the place where the repentant, the place where the individual who is working back from a space of difficulty comes from, they have a greater strength in Avodah Hashem than sometimes a person who has never struggled at all. So while I don't have evidence based on my profession to make the distinction between 13 versus 20, everything I know tells me that it might take a little bit more for a 13-year-old who starts using to get better, but there's no doubt that they can get better. And with regards to the first question of genetics, this is a longer question. Typically speaking, if there's genetic predisposition towards addiction, it means that a person has to be on the lookout. It means a person has to be aware for their children and to educate their children on what substance usage means for them. But genetics need not be reductive. The fact that my grandparent was an addict or an alcoholic does not mean that I will immediately become an addict or an alcoholic. It just means that if I grew up in a household where mom and dad thought that drinking alcohol or using a substance was the best way to cope with difficulty, then naturally when I grow up, I'm going to feel the same way. Or if mom and dad were absolutely anti-substance because grandpa and grandma were addicted, that means that I'm going to have an unhealthy relationship and I'm going to be interested in substances. So genetics is not simply our DNA, but it's also the way that we think and the way that we learn to live our lives. But nothing is written in stone. Absolutely nothing is written in stone. And in fact, addiction and recovery are not two opposites. A person needs to become addicted to recovery. We can never get rid of the energy of addiction. We can only learn to tame it and utilize it for our benefit. My bias is that if I set up a list of 10 adjectives that animate the life of an addict and 10 adjectives that animate the life of a recovering individual, it will be very difficult to tell the difference because both are utilizing that same type of energy. This is what we learn in this week's Parsha, this previous week's Parsha in Parsha's Peshalach. The Jewish people came and they found bitter waters and they began crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, crying to Moshe, complaining about the bitter waters. And Hashem said to Moshe, take this tree and throw it into the waters to sweeten the waters. The Ramban on that Pasuk 
says that it was a nase besocha nase. It was a doubled miracle. Why? Because the tree itself was bitter. And here we found sweetening the bitter with the bitter. That very often we feel the need to sweeten the bitter with the sweet, to fix addiction through Torah, to fix addiction through something other than addiction. Sometimes what we have to learn is that it is specifically the energy that the addicted individual, on whatever level, and we're all addicted to something or some idea, that we have to take that difficult energy and use it to sweeten the very thing that is causing us problems. Chazal say, this is what is what we refer to as sweetening the bitter with the bitter, mamtik mar bemar. Chazal tell us that minei ubei ave nagre, from the forest itself comes the handle for the ax. When we find a forest in our lives, trees that are blocking us from moving forward, we spend all our times trying to find other answers, but sometimes the answer lies hidden in the tree itself. And we have to learn how to look and understand our own addictions in order to heal them, Bezer Sashem. Wow. Okay. There's so many live. We didn't get to all the email questions. Okay. You're on. Hi. 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 It's funny. Listening to you, I just realized you may have even answered part of the question because I was going to bring up the subject of addictive personalities. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this energy, you know, I don't know if you work with people to sublimate instead of trying to repress or control. It's, you know, you know, they're going to have this fire in them, this passion. So maybe it's, when you talk about addiction, I'm assuming you mean something harmful, like drugs, you know, um, alcohol. But if it, you know, do you work with them to like maybe channel into something? Uh, now, now you hear, um, for example, the, the from Sahara, you can be loved you could develop a passion for Torah to the point where, you know, it, you know, you, you know, it could be, uh, I mean, you know, it, it turned into an escape of that, you know, an escape valve, but, um, you know, there, there is that danger as well to somebody with that passion may lack self-control. I, I, I don't know if these are just some of the issues that you do handle in your practice, like getting them to channel mm -hmm. that energy to something positive, but with a certain restraint. You know, uh, a good example, I'm so sorry, I need my morning coffee, so I guess I'm an addict, but it, it's it, does help me to, it helps me to daven better. So, you it's know, an so, question. Yeah. it's an amazing question. I don't have the merit to practically work with Jews as much as I would like to. You know, I have a private practice on the side where I do that, but my main stay in my work right now is with non-Jews, so... Torah is not so much of an option, but what I would say, Chayasara, is that, is that really, really the entire concept of 12 steps is built upon this principle. The notion that spirituality is the healthiest reaction towards addiction, or that the only way to get clean off of a substance is to attach oneself to a higher power, is basically the notion that Human beings have an inherent desire, like Rav Menachem started off with, to fill a certain void within ourselves. And the thing we desire most essentially is to cleave to that which is the higher power, which is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But because we're not educated on that, we will search out anything in our lives that will satisfy, even for a moment, that void we feel in ourselves. And quite frankly, I think anybody can agree, there is nothing that mimics the feeling of well-being like a mind-altering substance or a mind-altering behavior. 
So the problem of the addict is not that they're yearning or craving for something. The problem of the addict is that they thought that they could satisfy their craving for God with a substance. And this was explicitly a letter that Carl Jung wrote to Bill W about the founding experience of Alcoholics Anonymous, where he said that in truth, what the addict or the alcoholic truly craves is to cleave to the infinite. And listen to what Carl Jung says. Carl Jung says that the verse that is used to describe this is from Psalms that says, like a doe pineth after water, so does my soul pineth after thee. Or, my soul is addicted, is craving God. And if I can't ever find satisfaction in God, I will find satisfaction in the next best thing, which is some mind-altering substance. And Carl Jung famously says that the equation, therefore, is spiritus contra spirits, because the word that we use for spirituality and the word that we use for the most depraving poison, which is alcohol or any other substance, is spirits. And so the equation is we need to fight spirits with spirituality, that drugs have never been what a person truly wants. I'm a big believer that if we got to the core of what we wanted out of our addictive experiences, it would be the same exact answer of what we want out of our deepest spiritual experiences. We want calmness. We want menucha shlema. We want menuchas emes sheba. We want to feel okay. We want to feel calm in the moment. And the only way to find that when we let go of the substance is with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's simply nothing other left in the world that is stronger than the substance. Let's, 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 let, let's go a little deeper. Let's follow through. So mm -hmm. now that the person who's an addict and the people that you're working with, right? How do we take them from where they are in the depths of the toyam of the nunshas, the nun, the, you know, the nun tamtoma via primis atayra to bring them? How do you, how you connecting the two, the, the, the primis atayra to the addict? How are you taking it, connecting it and taking them out? Walk so first off, First off, it's an amazing question. First off, Panimiya Satora gives us a language to relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu on a vulnerable level. To realize that to be a neshama in a guf is a trauma. <laughs> to be a neshama in a guf is to be thrown down from the most... Uh, should I play neshama? Should, should I play this one? I'm sorry? Should I play neshama? <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll talk. A.B. Rothenberg's song about the neshama describes this very well. But the neshama being thrown into a guf is a trauma. And not only that, but when we look at the Arizal, how does Hashem create the world? A person would expect, ah, oh, Hashem, the infinite, creates a perfect world. No, Hashem is mitzamsim himself. Hashem conceals himself, creates a vacant space of emptiness. And after that, what happens? Shvira sakelim, trauma. There's too much light. The vessels are not big enough. Everything shatters. Shattering is the birthplace of human subjectivity. Things being broken is the very sight where we become human. So Panimiya Satora first and foremost gives us a language to understand why it is that we're feeling broken. Why is it that I'm yearning after something that I can't seem to capture? As Chazal tell us, the neshama is like the soul of a princess who marries a village man. And no matter what that village man brings that princess, even if he brings a thousand percent of what he can, it still won't be satisfying to that princess because the princess knows what it's like to be a basmelech. Panimiya Satora first and foremost tells us how to deal with our lack. 
how to be okay with our deficiencies, how to recognize that it's okay to not feel okay in this world, how we are imperfect, and to find HaKadosh Baruch Hu specifically there. Then, as we begin to understand our deficiency, and again, addiction doesn't go away without stopping the behavior. But the good news is that we can stop the behavior. Whether it's a detox process, or whether it's a person making a hachlata sanefesh and working with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a group that helps them stop their behavior, stopping the negative behavior is unfortunately the easiest part of recovery. There is nobody who is not able to do that. Now, you don't want to do it on your own. Stopping a certain behavior on your own might be dangerous, depending on what your behavior is, but there is nobody who cannot stop their behavior. It's like going to an urgent care. A person can go to a doctor, get clean off of their substance. The next step is trying to find something that will replace that need for calmness and comfort in my life. The fear that the addict or the alcoholic feels is how in the world can I continue to live in this world without the thing that gives me strength to live in this world? And it's terrifying. And we have to acknowledge that terror. But the only answer is find alternative ways to get through, become addicted to spirituality. Learn and recognize that every encounter I have with Hashem in this world is a moment of yichidus with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is a moment of building broken pieces back into something that is whole. The hardest thing which we have not yet learned to realize, and unfortunately certain communities or all of our communities are taking a few steps back in this, is that joy does not equal physical pleasure. As long as we feel that joy and physical pleasure are synonyms, we will never be able to break free from our addictions. But the moment we learn that this life is not about physical pleasure and that I can encounter the deepest level of joy, specifically when I negate pleasure, when I say no to what my body wants, we will not be able to fully embrace the world of recovery. Surprisingly, I think the tzaddik that has the most to say about this is the chazonish. Chazonish says that there's really only one negative character trait. There's not a lot of bad midos, there's only one bad mida. And that negative mida is haznacha sachayim lezerem hativi, the abandonment of life to the natural proclivity of the body. If I give in to whatever my body wants, I will never be a free person. But the moment I learn to say no to myself, the moment I learn to overcome myself, the moment I learn the Meforshim on Ezehu Gibor HaKovesh Yitzro, who is strong, he or she who overcomes their desire, at that moment I learn the sweet pleasure that Rav Hutner describes in the language of the Chazonish as the sweet pleasure of Nitzachon, of being victorious over my drives. That's the hardest thing. In order to be Ovde Hashem, in order to be healthy people, we need to learn how to find joy and comfort in this world without the pleasures of the body. Joey, let's go back. Let's go back. The guy's sitting in the recovery. He's in the, 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 the bottom of the pit. What are we saying to him? Or what are you saying to him that's pulling him and giving him that feeling that I could let go? And he wants to let go. What, what do you, what? Let's... Hashem is with you and you have enough that you need in order to survive already. You have enough. You are enough. Your soul is enough. Your mind is enough. And once we get rid of that thought that we need this absolute 
action or substance to survive, we can learn to uncover within ourselves enoughness. We can learn to draw HaKadosh Baruch Hu into our lives. And when we can learn to take pleasure with HaKadosh Baruch Hu into our lives, we're no longer going to seek out the pleasures of the flesh. We're no longer going to seek out the pleasures of intoxication. But this all is built upon our willingness to accept that things are not okay sometimes. My favorite teaching in the world is from the Beis Yaakov of Ishbitz. The Beis Yaakov of Ishbitz writes in Parshas Noach, why is it that a drunken individual is not allowed to daven? Why can't an intoxicated individual pray? Because Chazal tell us that to be intoxicated means that I think the whole world is perfect. It seems that the world is perfect. And davening and a sense of perfection are polar opposites to one another. I daven to Hashem specifically because I'm imperfect. When I learn to accept my imperfections, when I learn to take a moment of doubt, and instead of being anxious, to draw Hashem into that moment and transform it into a moment of amuna, in that moment I become shikar on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I become intoxicated with the light of Hashem. Ah, does my body feel as good? No, but we're not children. We have to get over the need to feel good you're physically. Saying, you're saying a huge Kiddush. You're saying the reason why a person is not supposed to daven when it's shikar, because when you're shikar, you feel a wholeness of yourself and you feel certain contentment, so you don't have that Devekas in Hashem. Devekas in Hashem is absolutely built upon our sense that we're not Hashem, which means we're imperfect. You're right. So the opposite, the polar opposite of tefillah is feeling perfection. We need to get rid of this word perfection. Mamish. We have to get rid of the word perfection completely. It's not something. Shlemus, and even shlemus, even if we reach shlemus, we can all look up in the room that we're sitting in right now and see a ceiling. But that ceiling is just the ceiling versus the room I'm in right now. But it's the floor of the room above me. The moment the Jewish person thinks that they've become perfect is the moment the Jewish person is like God. And the moment the Jewish person is like God is the moment they're Oved Avodah Zarah. Okay, we have another live question. Let's go. You're on live. So first of all, I want to say uh, thank you to Rav Asher, Co Coach Menachem, Rabbi Joey. Hashem should continue to give you the koach to help all of Klal Yisrael. Amen. Um, so my question is as follows. Where's the line between being a perfectionist and doing the most I can do? Like to do the most hishtadlis I can do in a particular situation. How do I know if that's like getting into the sugya of perfectionism, or if it's just me doing the best I can? It's a great question. And ultimately, there's no specific answer to this. It's an answer that's going to be true according to each and every person, according to what they know of themselves. Each person is a universe in the world of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and no other person can come along. There are explicit signs that I've gone beyond the line of my ishtadlis, which is I'm not paying attention to my other responsibilities. I'm no longer present in conversation. I'm obsessing over this to an extent that's driving me crazy. So those are all external signs that can inform me that I'm pushing too hard on this. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, the Havdil, there is something referred to the serenity prayer. Now the serenity prayer is a very powerful prayer. It comes from a place of impurity. It simply does. It's not based on Kedusha but it's a profoundly powerful idea. And the serenity prayer, at least the part that the, the rooms of AA utilize goes as follows. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
So basically the question you're asking is, how do we uncover the wisdom to know the difference? Because there are a lot of people who suffer by accepting things they can change, and a lot of people who suffer by trying to change things they can't change. Now, just parenthetically, I would say that the serenity prayer was written by a non-Jew. Rav Cook wrote a serenity prayer that was a little bit different. Mamish, almost the same exact language, but it goes as follows. It says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, grant me the ability to fix the things I can fix, the wisdom to understand the things I can't fix, and the wisdom to know the difference. A person has to do their hishtadlis. A person has to understand that they're noam, shalom. If my hishtadlis becomes insanity, if my hishtadlis becomes something that is affecting my spouse or my children, or is affecting my neighbors, or is impinging on my ability to feel that normalcy of being an Evid Hashem, then in those moments, I believe that a person has to make the decision to accept their losses. Now, the benefit of having a Rebbe to ask is asking your Rebbe, right? If my hishtadlis is beyond the line or beneath the line, sometimes that's what we have to ask Eitza for. But for anybody who doesn't know how to ask Eitza or anybody who's not blessed to have a Rebbe that they ask, Avodah Hashem is not meant to make us unhappy or crazy. The underlying principle behind Avodah Hashem and Yegiya and Heshtadlis is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants the Neshama to enjoy the goodness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu as much as imaginally possible. And thankfully, since the Tzadikim, the Baal Shem Tov, the Vilnagon, the Ramchal, that no longer means fasting and suffering. It means as long as I feel good in the Heshtadlis that I'm putting in, as long as it's in line with Kirvas Elokim Litov, that closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu is good, then I can continue putting in my Heshtadlis. The moment someone else points out to me that it is no longer good for me or good for them is the moment I have to be Shoal Eitza. And being Shoal Eitza is very important. And my bias, and I will go out on a limb and say this, if you can't be Shoal Eitza and people in your life are pointing out that it's no longer good, then it's safe to assume that you have to take a break from that hishtadlis. Wow. Okay, wow. There's so many more. Okay, you're on live. Let's go. Hi. Um, thank you very much for all this education. Um, I have a teenage son, and I wanted to know, basically, how do you know when something is a stage? or just something that the boys do and you just let them ride through it, whether it's vaping or smoking or, um, I'm not talking about drugs, I'm talking about cigarettes um, or um, drinking at a kiddish, at a wedding, on Purim. Like, ha how do I be a responsible parent and not let my kid feel deprived and then starve for it and run to it to the other extreme basically Zoe, regular Bahrim 2022 the only thing I'll push back on Ravasher is there's nothing regular in 2022 correct nothing regular right we, we used to be able to say that not all of us experience trauma all of us have experienced trauma on some level or another one, right now one of the shroom we did we called it how to be sane in an insane world. Yeah. It's an incredibly, incredibly 
painful, delicate, important question to ask. And the hardest part about this is that there's no specific answer. A parent's job, as I'm continuing to learn, thankfully my children are young, so I haven't had to confront these problems, but I know my parents confronted these problems with me very often, is that we have to daven, we have to daven ta'kadosh baruch hu deshmaya to understand how to best be there for our children as they need us. A parent's job is to be there at any moment that their children need them. Overstepping the line and being negative and enforcing rules based on our awareness that our children might not be in line with runs the risk of pushing our children away from us. Being too permissive, especially in the environment nowadays, is also not okay. The first thing that we have to do, I believe, is speak to our children as adults. When we treat our children as mature individuals, they will react as mature individuals. They need to understand the dangers of substance usage. They need to understand that nowadays we live in a time period where there's no longer innocent substance usage. Nowadays, most of the overdose deaths, most of the overwhelming elements of children who are falling into addiction are not kids who are doing it deliberately. Very often, these are children who are being manipulated. Very often, these are individuals who think they're doing one thing when they're doing something else. And so many of the unfortunate deaths in our own communities, as well as the world at large, are because children have simply been unaware of what to be careful of. So first and foremost, we have to be able to speak maturely with our children. And yes, it's unfortunate that we have to be mature at this point when they're not ready to be mature, but ish, a person has to be an ish. And we live in a time, in a topsy-turvy time of Erev Shabbos, in a time before Mashiach where things are in a state of upheaval. And we have to treat our children as mature individuals and speak to them about what our concerns are. That being said, there are certain signs that a parent is capable of picking up on that can let us know that our children are in trouble. Major shifts in emotional patterns, major shifts in the type of people that our children are hanging out with, physiological shifts, a child losing weight, eating less, falling asleep, looking like they're much more tired than they typically are, more angry, more upset. I believe that that allows any parent to openly ask their child what is going on. But again, it cannot be by way of punitive and punishment. It can't be, I need to know what's going on with you because I want to get you in trouble. It needs to be, I want to help you. My singular job here as a parent is to enable you to learn how to live life in a healthy way. And when I see you this unhappy, and when I see you in such distrust and and struggling, I'm here to help you along the way. The moment the parent closes the door on a child's ability to be open and honest is the moment that our children are going to go out and do things behind our backs. Now, again, this does not mean allowing our children to do anything. As parents, we retain the right to make the rules and the regulations that we hold in our households. And whether it's the yeshiva that's doing drug testing or whether it's a household that's doing drug testing, things like that, I believe, are totally appropriate if need be. But there are certain behaviors like vaping or smoking, which have ultimately unfortunately, as a result of blind spots along the way, 
that have become norms. Now, nobody in their right mind is going to claim that cigarette smoking is a healthy thing for a child to be doing. Nobody in their right mind is going to be claiming that vaping is a healthy thing for their child to be doing. But to acknowledge that it is a reality for our children and to speak to them as adults with acknowledgement of what they're doing and to give them the information they need to know about how to make healthy decisions creates an open space where our children will be willing to communicate with us. The moment we make a rule and say, if I ever hear that you're vaping X, Y, or Z is going to happen, is the moment that our children now see vaping as something that needs to be hidden and something that needs to be hidden from our parents allows for us to lie, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that nowadays the mode of communication necessary is open-ended, honest communication, acknowledging what our children are going through, making room for what our children are going through, setting guidelines and boundaries for what our children are going through. I personally can attest to the fact that I have many clients or students at certain points in my career who were willing to call their parents and ask for them to be picked up while they were intoxicated because their parents knew that they were going to a place where they might be drinking. And in another situation, that would have meant the child driving home intoxicated. Now, is it ideal? Absolutely not. But we have to let go of the ideal. We have to realize that our children are functioning in a world that has created dysfunction. And our job is to reorient ourselves to be safe spaces for our children. Our children, like all of us, are accidental murderers. Most of the things we do is by accident. And like the Torah teaches us, when somebody kills by accident, there's something called an irmiklat, a city of refuge, a safe place that they can run to where they'll no longer be chased, where they'll feel safe and they're able to admit to what they've done without fear of being judged. Now, fear of judgment and fear of punishment are two different things. Punishment is appropriate sometimes, but judgment ultimately is never helpful. So while there's no specific answer to this other than learning your own child's experience, I believe the general answer that I feel comfortable offering is non-judgmental open-mindedness to what our children's struggles are, realizing that our children's struggles do not say anything about who we are as parents and making room for open and authentic communication, which I believe is ultimately the last thing that we have for ourselves in this generation. Rosenfeld, just powerful concepts, really unbelievable. But before we go to closing, a very basic question. If people are running away from something, whatever it is, it, for learning Panimia Satira, obviously it's going to take time till they connect and feel that calmness and that whatever they're looking for versus what they were doing till now um, using something which took a half hour, an hour, and they didn't have to work on it. And it's so much easier. So how can they, what do, what do we need to be able to, you know, get to the right place, holding somebody's hand, you know, it's much harder. It's much harder, but that's why we're talking on a language of Panimia Satora right now. It used to be that Panimia Satora was only for those who had finished everything else. Nowadays, what a Yid has to know, what a Neshama has to know, is that they're loved unconditionally by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that any moment of Amuna and Bitachon is worth the entire life cycle of an individual. 
to find joy in Avodah Sashem, to go to a Tish, to drive out to the five towns and go to Rav Weinberger, to go to Bar Park and see Rav Matel Zilber, when they're in Yerushalayim, instead of going to the mirror, to go to Rav Yitzhak Meyer Morgenstern, to see that there are tzaddikim who are mamish drawing down lights of tainug. The goal of Avodah Hashem is to have tainug, to sing songs with our children, to enjoy the food, to sit with a child, and even if it's watching a sports game, to do it as a father or a mother with a child, and to do it in a form of chinuch habanim, of being unified and enjoyment. Our children, our generation is not so starved. We just have forgotten completely the enjoyment available in Avodah Hashem. And you're right. You're right, Menachem, that we have to learn how to get over the basic taivos that satisfy us immediately. But we know already, any person who's engaged in that taiva, open up a face-to-face conversation and say, has this fixed anything for you? And the answer will be no. Because as quick as the pleasure comes, it quickly dissipates and falls away. A person has to know what an neshama is. We have to educate our children nowadays with the language of the Baal Shem Tov and the Vilna Gon. We're no longer at a place where, oh, if you know Shas, then you can start learning Nefesh Achayim. Adarabba, learn Nefesh Achayim. Teach a child when they're young that every bracha that they make is more significant than whatever Russia could have ever done physically. That every moment of Avedis Hashem, every Nekuda and Amuna and Bitachon is worth the entire world. We also have dips and we have food and we have, we have kosher bacon for crying out loud, right? We, we live in a time where tainug is available to us, but the person has to be mechunach themselves and it's not so hard. It's not so hard to get over immediate gratification when you truly talk to a person and say, where has immediate gratification gotten you? Teach a person to wait for pleasure and they'll find that pleasure and they'll be willing to wait. If we tell you, no, no pleasure, no pleasure in anything other than Torah, life is not about pleasure. So then Avada, they're going to search out pleasure elsewhere. But when we say, no, 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 life is about pleasure, but find pleasure in Torah, find pleasure in Jewish music, find pleasure in Titian, find pleasure in Smachos, find pleasure in Shabbatonim, find pleasure in learning exciting Torah, learning what Yosef was struggling with. A child will say, oh my goodness, Yosef? I never knew. This is what I'm struggling with. I thought I have no access to the base medrash. Yosef had tzaddik struggled with this. It's a different story. Tell stories of tzaddikim, to read the books of tzaddikim. We have to replace pleasure with pleasure. The neshama will never be satisfied without pleasure. We have to just learn how to reorient ourselves to pleasure. But you're absolutely right. Savlanut is imperative. A person has to taste that difficulty of patience. We have to be patient, but we have to also learn and we have to also be able to say that patience pays off. The longer we wait, the more beneficial that pleasure will be. And davening and saying to heal him with pleasure. Our tzaddikim told us that the kiyum of Torah l'shma is learning with pleasure. We're in Azman of Shovavim. We know that pleasure, fallen pleasure is something that the Jewish people are always going to run to because we come from a place of pleasure. And until we learn how to find pleasure in learning. And again, this goes to a whole nother area of how to undo all of the damage we've done by making learning into some intellectual exercise of being the best at learning, of being the best at mitzvahs, as opposed to doing your own mitzvah in the best way. 
each and every person as an akuda of chain of glory of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, that they singularly can offer that nobody else can offer. And we have to remember that. We have to remember as well that overcoming struggle is worth coming down into this world for 120 years. So I don't think it's so hard, especially because of what we're doing right now, Coach Menachem and Usher. What we're doing is we're offering insights into the pleasurable experience that Yahadus is meant to offer. To give a chush of Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, there was no fear of eating from the fruits. We have to benefit from the fruits. We have to taste every fruit. We just have to make a bracha beforehand. And Bezra Sashem, in that way, we can learn to find pleasure with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like the Ramchal teaches us, there's no greater pleasure in life than closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, there's, there's more questions. <laughs> okay, well, this is going to be the last one. Unless anybody else wants to ask. I'm okay. I still have a little bit of energy to go. So, Joe, we can go all night. I'll tell you, the Ilum here, the Ilum is Gvaldic. Okay, you're on. Let's go. Hi. Thank you Hi. for being here. Um, I'm a very sensitive individual. I feel everything on a very deep level. And I feel like that I'm constantly I'm in a space of yearning for something that is here. The Except darkness is the light. Is how do I go about quenching my thirst in this paradox? Like in a moment, I can feel intense, intense darkness. And then in the next 30 seconds, I feel such liberating light. And this is what happens. And I'm a young, I'm very young still. And this is what happens in my day to day, not even, I mean, in every single moment that I live, this is what happens. It's a, a very powerful question. It's a beautiful question. And Ashrecha, however young you are, to be able to put your spiritual experience into language like this. So first off, I'll start off with, uh, with how to remove the difficulty that such an experience might come with. My bias is that souls that are more sensitive, and we're all sensitive, it's just a matter of how sensitive we're open to being, but souls that are more sensitive have a tendency to seek out relief when life gets too overwhelming. That those of us who find ourselves in a space of addiction, very often it is because of a hypersensitivity to the world. And so the first etza is to learn to relax, is to learn to take a deep breath and to learn that not everything needs to be so intense and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to be neshamos and gufim, Hashem wants us to be a soul within a body. And a soul within a body works best when it's calm. And when we come to the highest point of the week, when we come to Shalashudis on Shabbos, the thing we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for, for at Mincha is Menuchas Emes Sha'atarot We want Menuchas Anefesh. We want calmness of the spirit. We don't want to live in extremes. Like the Rambam tells us in Shmona Prakim and throughout Yisoyed HaTorah, that the middle path is the calmest path not to be in one extreme or the other, not to be too high or too low, not to be too close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu or too distant, but to rather find HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the silent middle path. But what you're describing on a deeper level is something incredibly potent, that tzaddikim tell us that the Jewish soul always operates between two polar opposite expressions, ruts of a shul, running forward to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and retreating away from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
running towards the infinite light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and retreating back into the silence of mundane experience. And as Rabbi Nachman teaches us in the sixth teaching of Lakuta Maharan, that it's not enough to be an expert in one of those paths, but a person has to become an expert in both paths. We have to be an expert of running and cleaving to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we have to be experts in what it means to retreat away from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What a person has to try and understand, and especially in line with what your question is asking, is Shavisi Hashem tamid. That the first halacha that Ramah brings down and the Vilna Gon points out that this is the Iker Maila of Tzadikim, is Shavisi Hashem tamid. I place HaKadosh Baruch Hu in front of me always. Shavisi. The Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh points out that the language of Shivisi, I place HaKadosh Baruch Hu in front of me always, also means Shivoy, equanimity. Shivisi is equanimity. It means that when I have Hashem in my life, I am okay no matter what. Whether things are profoundly exciting, whether things are profoundly overwhelming, whether I'm happy, whether I'm sad, I have a baseline where I am okay with Hashem. And when we develop that baseline, we will realize that we don't have to pay attention so much to what the Svarim would refer to as hispa'alus, as ecstasy or despondency. And rather, we have to learn how to uncover that quiet, silent, but sturdy presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in my life, no matter what. Something that is very helpful for this is learning how to daven slowly, how to say kapitlach of Tehillim slowly, when I feel most excited to hold myself back, and when I feel most low to push myself forward, and to ultimately come to a belief that Hashem is with me no matter what, whether I'm feeling things intensely or not. And in that way, a person will uncover the secret of Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, that the main way of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu is on a level of equanimity. Good, bad, ugly, beautiful, it's all the same to me. I'm calm, I'm taking a deep breath, Learning how to breathe is also very important in these scenarios. Learning how to inhale, how to hold the breath, and how to exhale. The neshama is breath. And when we slowly but surely learn how to develop a calm state of experience with the neshama, we don't get too moved one way or the other. It's a very powerful question, though. Joey, um, we got to zero questions from the emails. So I think we, that was a great opening. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess every Sunday for the next three months, we'll come back and we'll cover the topic. Amen. Uh, but it was Amen. Thank but, you so much for the opportunity. Uh, one second, one second. We're going to go to closing. And the, if you can leave the oil with the Bissel Chizuk, we're just going to wrap it up over here. I'll have sure. a lot more questions than people. So anybody who sent a question I didn't get to, I apologize. And people that emailed, we didn't even touch them. So I guess from Joey, you're a little bit on the hook to come back again. I'm just letting you know. Amen. Hineni. Okay. So first, I want to give Give me a sec. Give me a sec. Give me a sec. Me, Menachem, you. So first of all, I want to give a great yashkayach to Joey Roosevelt for coming on tonight. I give a tremendous chizik to Oilam. I'm getting text. Oilam is loving it. It was like next level. I don't think we've got you down all the way from cloud nine. We're probably like cloud seven. I think we did something, but uh, we got it. We got it. We got to. We got to really work on this again tonight's year. Learning a schus of Joey Roosevelt's grandmother was just up to this Thursday. Esther Tova Bas Mayer. My mention was over a thousand people here tonight, and thousands of people that will listen to it should be a big source from the Shama. And if anybody wants to join the WhatsApp, uh, get the flyers every Sunday and post them and send them out, please WhatsApp me at 848-525-0066. I'd be glad to, or you can go to menachembernfeld.com and you can sign up for his weekly email. They get the flyers every week and spread the word, join, jump in. 
Again, if anybody who's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30 Eastern time on the Zoom share, we have tremendous speakers, Rabbanim, therapists, topics. Sometimes you have mashpias, you have, you have therapists. You know, we mix them all up. We put them together. Whatever it is, we make it happen. Next Sunday, J January 23rd, we have an amazing show with David Becker, who's actually a friend of mine from Lakewood. Amazing person. He's considered to be the master in ADHD. We're talking about mastering ADHD, learning to survive and thrive with ADHD across the lifespan. It's going to be an amazing, powerful program. Please, as this, this, this relates to a lot of people, please let people know about it. It's a very, very important topic. And uh, it's tremendous to, to come on and to really hear from him. Everything's recorded. Mishnah will be on menachembrenfield.com. If anybody has any questions, please email at coachmenachem at gmail.com. Um, tonight's share, share number 87. Rabbi Joey, number 87. Can you imagine? And it's all recorded. And then, Shem, you can call the oh, phone line. We have our own phone line. You can listen yeah, to it at 848. What? Yakar mi Paz. Paz is Gematria 87. Okay, good. I was nervous about that. <laughs> um, recorded share. You can listen to it on the phone at 848-777-GROW. Thank you to advertising sponsors, Lakewood Scoop, Rabbi Yanim Chazak, and Chayla Kalfan Shulsam from JCN. And let's go to closing. First, we'll go to Coach Menachem, and then you, Rev. Joey, and let's 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 wrap it up. Rev. Rosenfeld, I I have to give you a, a big shkoyef. I think this is only the beginning. We're just hearing the beginning, and you know we could spend hours and hours. And I'm sure you'll share with us soon where we can go to hear your lectures, where you have them up. But it's just just amazing ideas really fascinating and to come to the ultimate emuna and bitachen that no matter where i am no matter what's going on this is what hashem wants for me and to be able to connect and become closer to hashem and yes i i do think it does take work but when you start learning about it and you start seeing what it is it it, it changes lives and it's, it's really unbelievable, and I really enjoy tonight. So thank you very much for being with us tonight. Uh, Joey, two things. First of all, people are asking, um, you have a share, you have a channel, you have an email address, they want your cell phone number, your home address, your social security number. They want all that, that's number one. And number two, before you go, what do you think is so many people that come in on a Sunday night, they could be doing who knows what, right? Drinking, smoking, alcohol, and they spend vaping and they spend the night here. And what do you think? There's so many, there's over a thousand people here tonight, which I'm, that's what, let's do it. So answer question one or two, and then let's go to closing. I'll start, I'll start with number one. Um, number one is Baruch Hashem, since moving to St. Louis, where there's been less of a face-to-face -face encounter, my Aisha Chayel has pushed me to start giving Shirim. We were using Zoom three years before COVID, so... Baruch Hashem, I have uh, almost 200 shirim, different series on the inner world of addiction, anxiety, the Leshem, Rav Cook, Rav Itchemeyer Morgenstern, Ishbitz, that can all be found on YouTube um, under Joey Rosenfeld. Um, there's also a podcast, which is on all podcast platforms, which is Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. I also, on the side, have a private practice, and that is, uh, you know, my email address or anything like that can be found online. In terms of the second question, I think it's a davar pashut. I think it's a davar pashut that as we get closer to via Samashiach, Nishmas Yisrael are coming closer to the understanding of what we truly need to satisfy our cravings. And the more and more Klal Yisrael struggle with 
external addictions, lo aleinu, it's more of a sign that the neshama is getting hungrier and hungrier, and that we're yearning for more and more. And that our souls are souls of chaos sometimes, that we want more than what we've been offered. And we have to begin to learn a new language. Rav Yerucham Levavitz of Mir used to say all the time that there's no greater secret in the Torah than understanding the self. And he says that just like Avram Avinu Alev HaShalom learned the entire Torah from his two kidneys, Meshtei Klayos, so too each and every person is the greatest parish imaginable on the Torah itself. That ha'adam hu ha'perish ha'chitov Torah, that the person's heart themselves is the greatest explanation of the Torah. And the more we come to understand that a Torah is medicine for us, the more we're going to come seeking it out. So I don't think it's a chiddush. Menachem Rav Usher, what you guys have set up is you've set up a nachal, you've set up a nachal nevei makar chachma, a spring that is irrigated with life-giving waters. And it's no wonder that those who feel brokenhearted and sick are coming to find their medicine, especially on a Sunday night. After falling away, we all experience trauma on Motzei Shabbos. We get thrown, like Rav Tzadok says, from the highest point to the lowest point. And the only thing to do on Sunday is to say, Hayom Yom Rishon B'Shabbos, at Shabbos again. And the only way to handle that is with the Pinimia Satora and a therapeutic Pinimia Satora, which is such a chiddush. It's not really a chiddush. It's the main reason that Panimia Satora was ever revealed, but to be talking about it so openly is a chiddush. So ashreichem, ashreichalkeichem, and it should be something that continues Advia Samashiach with 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 Siata Deshmaya, and it's been a major schus to be able to share in this way. And again, if there's ever a time I'm welcomed back, Hineni, I'll be waiting for every Sunday night to join you guys to listen also. What I want to end with is, is not a Torah, it is a story that I believe can, can really package together all of the Torah we've been sharing. It's a story about uh, one of the Tamidim of the Baal Shem Tov. His name was Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, the, the Vitebsker, the Heilig of Vitebsker. The Vitebsker was the Rebbe and very close friend of the Baal Hatanya. And the Vitebsker left Europe left being one of the greatest tzaddikim in Europe, and he decided that he had to get to Eretz Yisrael. And he settled in the town of Tiveria. And everyone knows if they've been to Tiveria, they know it's the city of water, of calmness, of Menuchas HaNefesh. And there was a time where the Vitebsker was sitting in his study, learning Gemara, and there was a hullabaloo, there was noise in the town of Vitebsk, <coughs> in the town of Tiveria, that Mashiach had arrived. People were running around saying that Mashiach had come. And the Tamidim ran to the Vitebsker to ask their Rebbe if Mashiach had arrived, if they should prepare. And the Vitebsker very slowly and calmly closes his Gemara. And he stands up from his shtender. And he walks over to the window in his cheder, in his inner room. And he opens up the window and he smells outside. And he turns back to his Tamidim and say, Mashiach has not come. Go back to doing what you've been doing. And after everything settled down, it was clear that Mashiach had not arrived. The Tamidim came back to the Rebbe, the Vitebsker, and they said, Rebbe, we believe you wholeheartedly. We believe you that Mashiach didn't arrive. But please tell us, why did he have to smell outside? And what the Vitebsker said is, he said, I needed to smell outside because in here, in my room, Mashiach has already arrived. When a person is present, when a person is present with what they're doing, when a person is present with their spouse, with their child, with their coworker, with their food, with their Gemara, with their Sefer, with their Kapitel Tehillim, with the song that they're listening to, 
Mashiach has come for them. Mindfulness, presence, awareness that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here with me in this moment, that's Mashiach coming for all of us. As the Baal Shem Tov taught us, Karve El Nafshi Allah, that there's a collective Geula that we're experiencing in the parashios that we read right now, but there's also the individual redemption that takes place moment by moment, day by day, where we scream out to Hashem from our own personal exile, and we cry out for redemption. Every moment of calmness is redemption. Every word of tefillah with kavana is redemption. Every smile instead of a frown is redemption. Every willingness to be patient instead of getting angry is redemption. And Mashiach can come for us at every moment of our lives. Like the Vitebsker teaches us that Mashiach can arrive for us. And even if he's not here for the rest of the world, we have the ability of living the future in the present, to taste la'asid lavo right here, right now. That is the promise for every Yid, that is the promise of every Neshama, to drink from the waters of Olam Habba that are dripping down into our world right now, so that we no longer have to wait for things to be okay in order to be okay, but we can close our eyes and take a deep breath, and whatever is going on, we can say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm okay with you right now. HaKol there, everything is okay. And in that way, we can learn to find Hashem even in exile. And when we transform exile into redemption, that brings the greatest amount of pleasure to HaKadosh Baruch Hu imaginable. Bezrus Hashem. Zoe, wow. That's all I can say. What is that, Gematria? Thank you very much for coming. It was murdered. Hashem will come again and murder. See you everybody next week. Same time, same place. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Coach Menachem here. If you enjoyed, please consider supporting us with a small monthly monthly donation to help sustain the future episodes and it'll be greatly appreciated thank you in advance